Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Abnormal transactions. Some kind of cyber attack on a bank. Tens of millions of dollars. Something I don't think anybody has seen before. The cyber criminal group. From the BBC World Service. The Lazarus Heist is back for season two. It was really like in the movies. Find out more at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to the Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry on Discovery for the BBC. This is the programme where you send us in the queries, questions and conundrums that you are curious about. And we will look into them on your behalf using the power of science. So please do send us your questions, curiouscases at bbc.co.uk and on with the show. Egypt for today's Curious Case and the mystery of the pyramids. Yes, Russell, aged 41, wrote to curiouscases at bbc.co.uk. He wants to know, how did ancient Egyptians line the pyramids up to face exactly north? I read this question and thought, pyramids are square. How are they <laughs> facing north? I mean, aren't I they facing all directions? One, I think it's like the trying the corner, you know. Anyway, let's we'll reveal that later. Dave Greasley also wrote to us wanting to know more after watching a YouTube and I'm doing air quotes here, documentary, (laughs) which he also puts in inverted commas, because he felt that some of the claims were a little bit too bold and wants us to help fact-check some ideas about measurements and precision used by ancient Egyptian builders. Well, this is great, because we can can finally debunk some of the more YouTube-y type ideas, notably the enduring question that another listener, Rich, also asked us, which is... Was it aliens? Rich, it's, it's never aliens. It's never aliens. I, but I tell you what, I am super excited about this because this this is a real passion of mine, actually. Is it? Yeah, I've written several books about pyramidology and ancient Egypt. No, you haven't. I, I, what, here, have a look at these. Uh, okay, so we've got The Great Pyramid, uh-huh. a scientific revelation by Dr. Adam Rutherford. Right. And there's a uh, two-volume classic, Pyramidology... Also by Dr. Adam Rutherford. Four volumes, actually. Okay. Yep. Okay. Well, hang on though. <laughs> the Glory of Christ as Revealed by the Great Pyramid. This one. This one was published in 1939. Yeah. Okay. It? It's not me. Yeah. It's, it's not me at all. My namesake, Dr. Adam Rutherford, was a pyramidologist in the, in the 20th century, and I only found this out when I was filming at the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford. I turned up, and the curator there was a super old guy. I think he was in his 90s. And when I arrived, he said, "You're Dr. Adam Rutherford." I went, "Yeah, I am." He went. <laughs> Your work on pyramidology is is very well regarded in the field. I went, is it? And he said, you're much younger than I thought you'd be. And I looked this guy up and, well, yeah, he did a lot of his work in the 1930s and died in the 80s and was a a biblical creationist. Mm. So Not not how I describe you. It's not me at all, in fact. Still, having those publications does wonders for your new job as an academic. Anyway, (laughs) Dr. Adam Rutherford, you are many things, but not an expert on pyramids. This is correct. Um, And so, what I thought we'd do, we'd get some real Egyptologists in. We've got Dr. Chris Naunton, an Egyptologist, broadcaster and author of Searching for the Lost Tombs of Egypt. And Professor Sarah Parkak, an Egyptologist from the University of Alabama. Let's start with the basics. Sarah first. Were the pyramids built by aliens? They were built by Egyptians who were not aliens. (laughs) Chris, do you concur? I do. 
Okay, well, that's the end of that case. Short, <laughs> short program this. You know what, though, Chris? We, we're going to focus on the Great Pyramids of Giza. Of course, other pyramids are available, but, are. I mean, these are sort of the most, most famous. Give us some basics. What can you tell us about them? At, at Giza, there are three main pyramids. These were built as the tombs of three pharaohs. There are subsidiary pyramids attached to all three of them. Um, some of them um, built for the burial of female members of the royal family. The three main ones are the, are the really famous ones, and the biggest of those, um, which is the oldest of the three, belonging to a pharaoh called Khufu, is known as the Great Pyramid, and that is the most famous, the largest, the biggest, the most sophisticated. Um, that's really the one. How big is it, though? I mean, if I, I've never had the, the luxury of, of going to see them. I mean, do they sort of dwarf everything in the landscape? They really do, yes. Um, so the Great Pyramid is just short of 150 metres in height, uh, around about 230 metres um, at the base. It's more or less a perfect square. They're built very deliberately on a, an area of naturally high ground. They, they tend to appear these days, if you're approaching from the city, you're approaching probably via a very busy motorway with high-rise buildings lining the sides but with gaps in between. You tend to get these sort of momentary glimpses. And I've been with lots of people who were in Egypt for the first time, seeing these things for the first time, and there's always a kind of... <gasps> And then they disappear again. But they are enormous. And Sarah, it's not just about size. There are lots of other impressive aspects to them. The precision of the building is is something that people have been impressed with. So, so when you get close to the pyramids, right, you're staring, you're in awe um, at the size, and you get closer and closer and closer. And then you you have what our colleague calls the, the hidden hand of man. Um, you see the, the chisel marks of the thousands of people who worked on building the pyramids. So they were able to put together um, millions of blocks that were the same size with a very high degree of accuracy. And what we can get into uh, measurements, how they were oriented um, to, to true north. But actually, the ancient Egyptians were brilliant engineers and architects. You mentioned something there that actually relates directly to the question that, that Russell asked us about uh, about the direction that these pyramids point in. Can you just um, help Adam understand how a square can, can possibly face north? Surely a square first. faces every direction with equal <laughs> well, measure. The pyramids were, are, are, the Giza were oriented um, quite beautifully north-south. And this is um, a theory that was uh, put forth and published in Nature about 20 years ago by our colleague, uh, Dr. Kate Spence. And she proved, I think, rather conclusively that around 2500 or so BC, ancient Egyptians would have aligned the pyramids um, with two stars, Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, aka the Big Dipper and the Little, Little Dipper. They would have formed an alignment that existed during that time. And you can actually track the of pyramid orientation later on as the as the stars shift. Um, so the ancient Egyptians measured true north using those two stars during that time. Let me just make sure I understand this then. So are we talking about the corners of the pyramids? One points to one star uh, and the, the, the opposite, the diagonally opposite corner points to another star. Is it that way around or is it the, the straight lines? It's a, it's a straight, straight line. So you've got the straight lines of one side of the pyramid is is uh, aligned to a star and as those stars drift over the centuries and millennia you can see how the the different pyramids w that were built change slightly in in angle yeah i mean so what's what's amazing is that these pyramids were aligned uh, with an accuracy of 0 0.05 
degrees. I mean, it's it's extraordinary. And it's the wobble in the Earth's axis of rotation. So the precession, you know, that that means that as the stars change or the position of the stars change, so did the um, alignment of other pyramids. Chris, I, I seem to remember reading this uh pyramids that you find over in South America have this similar feature of north and south and uh, that may be one of the reasons why it is aliens <laughs> um, that this is this is conclusive proof because these are two civilizations that didn't communicate with one another so why would they possibly have had the same idea? Well uh, yes you can see how people would make those associations and conclude that the only explanation for that is that you know the, they had architects and designers and builders in common um actually though what the egyptians are doing i think um it is perhaps something that's fundamentally human pyramids are all bound up in beliefs that the egyptians had about what happens to you in death and where you go they're bound up at this particular point in egyptian history in the idea of the king making a journey to the stars which were envisioned as the kind of place where the gods dwelt and that is something which um, seems to recur in ancient societies around the world. I think it's actually just that there is something fundamentally human about looking to the heavens, about envisioning the passage to the next life and to, to dwell with the gods as being a journey that you make towards the sky. And it wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility to think that other people in other places around the world just had similar ideas. Sarah? You know, to follow up what Chris just said, uh, when you think about giving a, a toddler, right, square blocks, right? Every kid around the world gets blocks at some point or plays with, with rocks. What do they do? They stack them, right? So people overthink this pyramid shape when, in fact, if you give kids blocks in China or Peru or Egypt or, or England, wherever you have them, you know, they just make this, this fundamental shape. So it's just a it's just a basic shape that we that we make. Um, so if a toddler can do it, so can cultures around the world. It doesn't mean that they're related to one another. Next, I want to ask the question: Why? Well, why? What was the purpose of these pyramids? We're talking about Giza specifically, but why build a pyramid? Were they all tombs? Were they all just in praise of the pharaohs? Yes, they do seem to have been tombs. And by the time the Great Pyramid is constructed, um, the Egyptians had for several centuries been making a big deal of the burials of high-ranking individuals. The person at the top of society, of course, is the king. Uh, there are bodies inside the pyramids, are there? Well, one of the reasons why sometimes people like to suggest that actually, no, they weren't tombs, they were something else, something, you know, very mysterious, something that the Egyptologists and archaeologists haven't realised. Like, like a portal to an alien dimension. Like something like that, exactly. Sure. That's, sure. that's one of the best ideas we've had. Um, it's because actually the, we haven't found very much by way of human remains in, in, uh, inside pyramids. But it's no, there's not nothing. And, of course, tombs um, frequently far more often than not, were robbed in ancient times, most probably where we have the evidence for it, not very long after the burials were made. Um, people were buried with lots of um, wealthy, nice little uh, rich bits and, bits and pieces, which were great for robbing. Um, and much as, you know, the sort of conventional line is that the Egyptians are terribly pious and ter terribly religious, it seems that there was, you know, enough people in society who weren't religious and pious enough not to want to rob the blingy stuff out of out of tombs so that really explains why we don't have bodies inside but even though the evidence is fairly meager 
We do have lots of other things, sarcophagi, other kinds of objects, which from elsewhere in Egyptian archaeology we know very clearly are for the burial of individuals, if not to receive the, the body itself, then mummified human organs or other things which are associated with well-established funerary rituals. So altogether, it's pretty clear that the best explanation for what these things are in all cases is tombs. Do we know the individuals that they were made for? Yes, more or less we do. Um, so, uh, you know, again, I, I think for the conspiracy theorists, what they'd really like to see is an enormous sign saying this was constructed as the tomb of this pharaoh. We don't tend to have very, very clear inscriptions like that, but we've got enough. So in the case of the Great Pyramid, we have numerous graffiti of the men who worked in the construction of the Great Pyramid who belonged to uh, groups of workmen whose, and those groups had names, and those names were things like the really great gang of workmen working on the building of the Pyramid of Khufu. Yeah, need to work on the names there. <laughs> not a good, not, well, it's not a good gang name. In English that. translation, it's terrible, but the Egyptian's beautiful. OK, Chris, you're painting quite quite the picture here of, uh, of, of, of the Egyptian person of the day graffitiing, robbing graves. Um, Sarah, what would these pyramids have, have, have actually meant to the people who were living at the time that they were built? For the ancient Egyptians in the Old Kingdom, um, the, the king was a living god on earth. And these pyramids were representative of the king's ultimate power and, and his promise to the people of Egypt. Ultimately, his job was to be the guarantor of this concept called Ma'at. And Ma'at was the ancient Egyptian goddess of, of justice and of balance. Um, and every year, if the Nile didn't flood in this sort of Goldilocks zone, not too much, not too little, um, Egypt could, the people of Egypt could starve um, or their crops could be ruined. And the, and the pharaoh promised essentially the, um, the ancient Egyptian people that, you know, he would be the one that would ensure that the floods would come every year and ensure prosperity for their people. And, and, and today, you even though they're amazing to look at, you have to think about what they would have looked like shortly after they were constructed. They would have been encased in very fine limestone from Torah, fine, fine white limestone, and this golden pyramidian on top. Um, so when the sun rose or the sun set, it would have been, I think, quite magical. Chris, could we, could we build a pyramid on that scale now if we wanted to? No, I don't think we could. Um, I mean, they're all. We tend to focus on the construction and, and the precision architecture and this kind of thing. And how you know how did they move those great big blocks? And and actually, one of the most important aspects of the construction of a pyramid is the vast manoeuvring of huge quantities of resource. That's natural resources, obviously, and we tend to focus on these enormous stone blocks and how on earth could anybody have moved them? Um, also, huge numbers of people. And all of that requires, it's very sort of boring to think about it really, but all of that requires a very sophisticated system of administration. And at the kind of heart of that is a sophisticated and high-functioning system of writing. And actually, it, in some ways, it's, it's that administration and the system of writing that enables it. But I think Sarah's absolutely right also to, to point to the fact that for the Egyptians, Pharaoh is a god. And I quite often find myself having conversations with people who, who are wondering how on earth people could have been persuaded to buy into this massive project. You know, why would you do this? Because it was a state project. A huge number of people were working on this. It was the great national project. Um, but if you really believe 
that th this is the tomb or this is the monument to a god, a god on earth, then that's all the motivation you need. And that's very, very difficult for us to get our heads into, I think. We've naturally started talking about some of the questions that, that, are, that, that people have asked us about how. We've done the why. Now we're on to the how the pyramids were actually built. Sarah, I want to ask you the question that Chris just alluded to, which is, well, okay, I, you say people fixate on the, how we lifted those massive blocks. What is the answer to that question? So and I've seen groups of sort of seven to 10 men move blocks that are several tons. So if you imagine that um, in ancient Egypt, you have these you know, multi-ton blocks and they're moved along a ground, along a ramp with wet ground and ropes, and they're moved in unison, um, then it's not difficult at all to imagine how these massive blocks could have been moved into place. It's just force and, and, and time. And we actually have images from a period of time a little bit later in the Middle Kingdom showing hundreds of men moving an absolutely massive um, seated statue. So that's really, that's how the pyramids were built, just, just large numbers of men uh, moving blocks over wet sand. Was it just that they exploited the use of slaves? So this is one of the common misconceptions. And they absolutely were not slaves at all. You have a professional workforce. So the trained masons, the, uh, the scribes, the architects, um, the people who were really organizing everything. It wasn't slaves. It was corvée labor. It was people who came um, to, to be part of this extraordinary group, right? They, they were inspired by the fact that the king was a god. They would have had access to all this wonderful food. It would have been a party. Um, we have to think about the, the daily lives of the people who built the pyramids um, and, and what could have convinced people to stay and do what was really, really hard work and the bureaucracy in place to allow that happen. You know, there was massive um, calorie consumption. If you're moving blocks every day, it would be like you know, going to the gym for four or five hours a day or more. And so they would have consumed large amounts of beef. Um, they would have had to have had lots of carbohydrates, so lots of bread and beer. Um, and the thing that sounds, I always... This sounds great. Yeah, well, so, so to, to Chris's point earlier, like, what convinced people? Okay, the king is a god, but also... Beer and beef. <laughs> yeah, it, beer and all the burgers you can eat. Oh, my God. And lots of beer. And I sort of, I always wonder, because I, I, I always think, what, what would it have really been like at Giza? Like, imagine the, the life of the people who live there. And if it's not going to be fun, then what's the point? Well, actually, we, we have an inscription um, in the Pyramid uh, of, of Mankara. And so the, the ancient Egyptians when they were building the pyramids, would have been organized into distinct workforces. And one of the groups called themselves, and I'm not making this up, the Drunkards of Mentara. Uh, I mean, these are not builders that you want doing your, your kitchen. Wow. So, so, so you, you imagine there's this huge um, administrative capacity that we just, just see for the first time that allows them to, to construct these things. I mean... Did they have like a working schedule? Did they have a payment schedule? I imagine that there was some sort of Gantt chart involved. A few years ago, uh, a papyrus was discovered on uh, the Red Sea, which is essentially a kind of um, like a, a, a diary, a journal of a guy called Mera who was involved in the construction of the Great Pyramid. And it makes um, reference to stone blocks being transported from Tura up onto the Giza Plateau for construction in the pyramid. 
it's um, it's kind of been a revelation in Egyptology because we just don't have these records. We've had to infer that they must they must have been doing this kind of thing. Um, you know, they must have had these great records. They must have had a track of numbers of people and who they were. You know, how they were organised. You know, whose shift it was on that particular day, which bit of the pyramid they were going to be working on, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But we we didn't until a few years ago with this discovery in the Wadi El Jaf on the Red Sea papyrus of Mera. We didn't have any evidence of that but that that's why this discovery is so massive it's clearly just one tiny fragment of what then uh, what must have been an enormous and complicated bureaucracy there's been a theme that's been running through this whole conversation which is that pyramids attract such bonkers conspiracy theories so why have there been so many theories suggesting aliens or supernatural events or lost civilizations well we spoke to dr heba abdul gawad an egyptian heritage and museum specialist and she's interested in the colonial practices and legacies surrounding how egypt is presented to the world today this is what she said i think at the heart of why there are so many far-fetched theories surrounding the pyramids and their origins is racism. The fact that it couldn't be that non-white civilizations are capable of creating something of such complex technology. The very beginning of these theories started from the late 18th and 19th century at the peak of colonial expansion within Egypt and wider Africa. And this came at the very same moment where there were the science of or the racist science of identifying race, etc., and defining superior races, which again came to be ironically exclusively white. Chris, Sarah, what, what is your take on, uh, on, on that idea that racism and colonialism is, is, is part of the reason this has become such a hotbed of conspiracy? Chris, why don't you go first? Well, I think um, there's no question that in the early days of modern Egyptology in the 19th century and into the early 20th. Practitioners of Egyptology and archaeology who generally were not Egyptian at that time brought with them a lot of um, preconceived ideas and baggage, which clearly is racist. And they brought that to bear in their interpretations, and we see in lots of ways that there are assumptions made that the Egyptians couldn't possibly have done this or they couldn't possibly have done that. Um, so you know, because so they I, weren't sophisticated enough, because they weren't white Europeans. Yeah, I think exactly. I, th- I think ultimately, because there's this idea that all sort of you know all of the most sophisticated aspects of civilization and culture can't possibly come from this part of the world. They have to come from somewhere else, like ancient Greece. There's an know. irony in there, though, isn't there? Because you know, I'm mean, not dissing Stonehenge, but it's a noticeably less sophisticated a piece of ancient architecture than than the pyramid at Giza. Sounds like you are dissing Stonehenge. Yeah, please don't write in. I know Stonehenge people are going to be extremely cross. I love Stonehenge. It's just not as it's not as sophisticated. Which is, which is older. The earliest aspects of Stonehenge are as early as as the pyramids, but then I find it difficult to disagree with Adam that you know the the, the Great Pyramids say is a far more sophisticated, larger, but frankly just bigger, greater achievement. Than Stonehenge, sorry. Than a stone popped up on its side. Oh, we're going to get in so much trouble from this. Sarah, what's your take on this idea? So when you stand in front of um, the pyramids today, it's it's hard to understand what you're seeing in front of you um, didn't just show up. It would be like the iPhone 14 popping in your pocket. It seems magical and otherworldly, but you have to go back to Alexander Graham Bell and the 13 iterations of iPhone that came before it. Um, and the pyramids represent the, the end stage 
of um, hundreds of years of innovation and and experimentation. I, I try to always understand why people would think it's it's aliens and why they wouldn't be inspired by this great sense of wonder. And it's just a lack of understanding. Um, so yes, it, it is incredibly racist, I think, to think that these these amazing people didn't have the skills and capacity um, to, to construct the pyramids. I do also wonder, though, just hearing both of you describe what it feels like to stand in front of them, what it feels like to have the sun rise over the top of them and what they might have looked like when they were first built. I do wonder whether there's something so awe-inspiring about these pyramids, that sort of perfect balance between absolute precision and simplicity that really makes them the kind of objects that were always going to attract conspiracies. Yeah, I think there is something in that too. I I think they are almost impossible for people. You know, they're they're too big and too sophisticated. And this idea that um, you know, if you if you sat there in the quarry banging the stone with your stone pounder for long enough with your mates for long enough, then eventually you can free up these huge blocks of stone. We kind of can't imagine that because, you know, God, it'd be so boring, wouldn't it, after a while? Just, and, you know, and then you've got to haul it to Giza and that would take ages and it'd be so boring. And, you know, somebody like me who's a lazy person who just sits at a desk all day would obviously walk off the job after about 15 minutes because I can't imagine people wanting to do that. Even with the, the incentive of, of infinite burgers and, and beers, as Sarah said. Yeah, infinite burgers and beers, I think that, that would help. That would definitely help. <laughs> maybe that would get, you know, extra kind of half an hour, three quarters of an hour out of me, maybe. But if I, but again, you know, if I could believe in the, the, the godliness of the king, that would help too. Actually, having spent, you know, 25 years thinking about the ancient Egyptians, there's lots of ways in which I'm kind of completely wowed by them. And there are ways in which their humanity mani- manifests itself. And we've already talked about things like graffiti, um, I don't know, little kind of satirical drawings that you see, which gives us a sense of the Egyptians away from the formal stuff and towards the informal. But also, you know, when it comes to their accomplishments in, say, arts, some of the Egyptian sculpture is just absolutely the best sculpture human beings have ever produced. And the likenesses that they produce of individual human beings with all of the emotion that they can convey, these are just people. They are people. Ancient Egypt is an incredible organisation of ordinary people. And that's what allows the creation of of the pyramids. It's those ordinary people, but organised in this phenomenal way that we, a lot of us, have a hard time believing in. But it really happened. Well, I think when you present it like that, I mean, it really is just all sorted. So thank you to our real Egyptologist, Dr. Chris Naunton and Professor Sarah Parkak. So, Dr. Rutherford, when it comes to the case of the Pyramids of Giza, can we say it was aliens? No, Professor Fry, we cannot. Because it's never aliens. Instead... The pyramids were built in honour of the pharaohs as colossal monuments to their godlike status. By an evolving civilization with incredible admin. Their square-based triangle structure is just a fancier form of the shape made by toddlers if you give them some blocks to play with. And they were made through unimaginable effort. Workers chiselling away determinedly at slabs of rock and using water and oil to scoot them across the desert. But not by slaves. By gangs of men propelled on by beer and burgers. One of the most dangerous and prolific criminal hacking gangs in the world. They're accused of robbing banks, stealing secrets, and causing mayhem everywhere, from hospitals to Hollywood. Investigators say they're working on the orders of the North Korean state. A claim dismissed by the regime as an attempt to tarnish the country's image. 
a sovereign nation trying to earn revenue to fund weapons of mass destruction. $2.1 billion in stolen funds. In season two of The Lazarus Heist, from the BBC World Service, we're picking up from where season one left off. Far from disappearing into the shadows, it seems the Lazarus Group has been busy. We have tracked your funds to a North Korean account. Carrying out ever more elaborate money grabs. Coordinating in more than 20 countries. And they're not working alone. He organized money laundering operations. They found over $100,000 cash under his mattress. Search for The Lazarus Heist wherever you get your BBC podcasts.